Join. Good. Uh, morning, everyone. Hang on, I just need to open the volume. Good morning. Oh, there we go. Turn everybody up. Hello. And I just need to. Ah, so this is really annoying. I, I hate, um, like audio settings on computers because there's so many because different ways so many different different volume. volume. You can adjust volume on like your amplifier for your headphones. You can adjust volumes for the the volume mixer. You can adjust volume on the individual apps, and you can never get them just right. This is this is me completely Hello. complaining. But my goodness gracious me, uh, I, oh, I almost blew my eardrums out when I joined this stream right then. But anyway, that's just, that, that's just that sounds point. unpleasant. <laughs> oh my god, he, there's so much to unpack in this video. I can't write an entire uh, thing for it. Uh, I have uh, I have one part done uh we'll uh that's all right take, that. take the time uh by the way captain we still have our schedule with the lovely game developers after oh boy uh, after this so uh, assume, isn't it assume isn't it two o'clock in the morning for you though that's all right uh, uh, it's all right okay red bull my good man red bull and uh other substances okay. so it's fine uh, i'll be good all right um, i have a question uh I, to economics explain, like, what would you consider the most important uh, industry for, like, world, world um, industry or, like, um, how do I say it? For, like, the world, for, like, the economy is, um, how do I say it? Uh, um, what, what the most important world industry is at the moment? Yeah, like, you could say maybe oil or something, computers, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest growth industry has certainly been um, computers, at least in the last sort of three or so decades. But that doesn't mean that they're uh, inherently more important in a sense. Uh, I suppose, realistically, I'd probably say farming, right, if we're talking about importance, because, uh, you know, realistically, we could probably live in a world without computers. We could probably live in a world without oil. Um, but, man, if farming stopped, we would be <laughs> fucked. So, I mean, that's that's the best answer I can give you, but... Uh, I mean, realistically, a lot of them are dependent on one another, right? Uh, computers as they exist to, to benefit, like, you know, productive capacity of mankind would be useless without uh, industries to facilitate that usefulness in. Uh, and in the yeah. same way, you know, things like oil uh, have been massively benefited through, you know, technical revolutions. You know, the way that we can model oil fields and stuff like that now using computers uh, would be unheard of, you know. Uh, 50 years ago, so they kind of feed off each other. You can't look at any particular industry in isolation, I think. And say it's like uh, more important than the other, all right? Yeah, yeah. that's right, that's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, well, look, I mean, if I had to pick, yeah, farming, I suppose, it's it's obviously crucial to, to human uh, humanity and humankind and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, um, so I'll start off before too many people join uh, just by saying, as always, I, I really hope um, that all of you guys are staying safe and amongst all of the uh, craziness in the world right now, you know, staying inside if you can, making sure you wash your hands plenty and, uh, you know, not doing anything silly like all of those people that were out on Bondi Beach the other day. Um, genuinely, look, obviously, uh, we're living through history and it's just one of those things that, you know, be sensible, guys. Uh, outside of that, though... Um, I just want to make sure that people on the YouTube live stream can hear me and everyone else clearly. Um, so someone leave something in the chat if you can, because uh, I've been frigging around with audio settings all day, so I'm not, I would be surprised if uh, you actually could. And I'm assuming everyone here on Discord can hear me and I sort of sound acceptable. Yeah, ah, you do. Yep. Yeah, okay, so that's normally, that's normally a good sign. 
Uh, no one said anything over on YouTube Live, so either it is all good or they can't hear me at all, in which case... Uh, I'll go. You know I'm, I'll yeah. just check for you. Nah, don't. Yeah, I'm in the stream right now, and it sounds good. Cool. All right, you sound okay. Excellent. All yep. right. So um, with that, same sort of format as always. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the video. Uh, I hope you guys sort of took something away from it, whether you agree, disagree, you know, want to fight me on something, that that's fine. Uh, outside of that, though, um, Captain Locke, as always, has so kindly sort of broken down the topics in the video into, um, you know, sort of very sort of round, um, round points that we can discuss sort of one by one. Uh, and the other thing is, of course, if we do go off topic after that, that's completely fine at the end of the day. Um, these Q&A sessions are supposed to be... Um, you know, pretty free-flowing, but for, you know, let's say at least the first half hour, let's try and stick to this. Uh, so I brought them up on the screen here for all of you guys on Discord, you'll be able to see them. Um, so I guess we'll sort of kick off with the first one. Um, what causes growth? So marching towards a better question, uh, you know, well, actually, oh, here we go. Uh, the teacher in Captain Lock has sort of come out. Um, for those of you who don't know, he is a teacher. So <laughs> a quick question for the audience. Uh what do you guys actually think of it? So The Economist, uh, it's actually a really good question because there's a lot of disagreement. What do you guys think of using GDP, gross domestic product, as like pretty much the sole figure that we look at when we're looking at growth? You know, almost all the figures you'll hear are about when we're talking about growth is, is GDP growth. As the teacher, I really want to answer. <laughs> Ah, well, look, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's open a forum. Uh, she's a GDP is not great. Yeah, uh, yeah, and... I hate it. I hate yeah. it so much. Yeah, and look, I have opinions on GDP, um, okay. but I'll keep those to myself until, like, someone, oh, she, I don't know if you want to, I don't know if your microphone's working, but if you want to share them, uh, it's often a really good one because a lot of people just sort of take it for granted and, uh, and, and perhaps people that are new to economics as a discipline, you know, just sort of have heard about it, but just sort of, you know, don't really think too much about it. <laughs> Clarify, I hate it because people take it for granted. That's the only reason why I hate it. Yeah, I, I just like it mainly because it could be taken out of context. Like, yeah, like 10% GDP sounds amazing. But again, like you said in the video, if you use short-term debt to facilitate that, then you're, the, the numbers artificially increased. Yeah. Um, so I'd say maybe a 10-year GDP or a... Uh, you know, nominal and real GDP and make those different, make, the, make that difference, you know, known uh, is a far better use of uh, most economists' time, as well as I personally believe even then there are still better met metrics to measure output. Yeah. I mean, um, what, would, what, would your, what would be your, if you, if you had like a go-to to show one figure for how an economy is going, what would you use? I, I would not use any uh, investment index. Um, I would I'd personally like to use consumer uh, trust or the credit rating of a country. That, that those two might go in hand in hand in explaining how consumers feel. Because again, most economies are based around consumerism. Yeah. Well, most modern economies. I mean, the issue with uh, the issue with like. Uh... Credit scores, I guess, um, on a national level, is is their you know quantitative figures. They're not nominal, um, so it's you know once you've got a triple A credit rating, that's it. You can't really improve on that, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that. But 
Um, I think it's really good. And so for people that may not sort of have too much skin in the game for this, I really want to understand what uh, GDP is um, and then sort of look at the limitations of it. Then we're going to get back to SpencerBot 15th question because it is a really, really good one. Um, but for now, look, GDP or gross domestic product is basically the sum total of all the transactions within reason that take place within an economy. Um, so it's consumer spending plus investment plus government spending plus net exports. So basically, if you spend money on, on anything or money changes hands, uh, outside of very, very fringe cases, it's going to be included in uh, the GDP figures, uh, which is, you know, uh, it's sort of a very sort of broad way of sort of looking at how much money there is sort of running around an economy. The idea and the rationale is yeah. that if there's more money changing hands, that means a few things. People have more money for starters, uh, and it also means that you know, there's more goods and services being sort of created and exchanged in the economy, which means more people are improving their, their quality of life. The assumption is if you're buying lots and lots of stuff and exchanging lots and lots of money, you are, um, you know, improving your quality of life. You're maybe buying that brand new car or that new watch or uh, whatever it is that you buy, a private school education. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the assumption is that if you're purchasing something, it's, it's going to improve your quality of life in some way. Uh, now, that's all fine and dandy, but the problem is that sometimes... Hello. Uh, hi. Sometimes GDP picks up figures that are kind of sort of more or less irrelevant, um, you know, and, and it sort of picks it up in, in a weird way where it might not be truly indicative of how great an economy actually is. So, for example, um, if you have more people in a society, uh, oh, I'm going to mute you because you're bedoing a lot. Uh, if you have more people in a society, obviously there's more hands uh, to change money between and more transactions, even if it's this sort of a lower amount for each individual person, uh, means that you're going to have a high GDP. So a really effective way to increase your GDP is just to have lots and lots of children. Uh, and that's where like a purchasing power parity GDP comes in uh, to an extent as well, because it also calculates uh, you know, how much you can buy for X amount of dollars. Uh, and somewhat tailors that for the amount of people. So there are a lot of limitations, and GDP uh, oftentimes just isn't a, a be-all and end-all. The analogy that I use is that it's somewhat like a, a rev counter or a, or a tachometer in your car. Uh, you know, it, it can tell you some stuff. It's not a completely useless figure at all. Not by any means. But it's not the only thing that you should be looking out for. Uh, you know, if your tachometer sort of reads... 6,000 RPM, oh, okay, fantastic, you know, that's, that's great. Um, but it doesn't really mean anything without context. If that's 6,000 RPM in a, in a nice Ferrari, a V12 or something like that, that's a completely healthy engine. If that's in a, you know, four-cylinder tractor engine, well, you are going to blow up. Um, and the same is true. Like, I mean, you can have 6,000 RPM and it can be sort of running smooth, but if you have a check engine light on, same sort of thing. There are more metrics to look at than just this singular figure, uh, and people tend to... Uh, obsess over it because it is how we generally measure growth uh, and growth has a lot of feedback things you know if a, an economy grows um, year on year the political party in power will look really really good uh, if an economy does not grow based on GDP figures so if it has two quarters of negative growth uh, on these GDP figures it's said to be in a recession so there's a lot of I suppose marketing almost in a sense around making sure that that figure looks fantastic uh, above other things you know debt ratios household income inequality actual genuine purchasing power quality of life living standards um you know human development indexes so there's a lot more to look at in an economy to determine if it is actually uh good uh so i think that's a really big one and i want you guys to all to take that away
So with that out of the way, rant over about GDP. Uh, Spencer bought 15 had a really good question. You said in the video that debt is a major problem for our economy. However, much of this debt was taken on because it was so artificially cheap due to reckless monetary policy by central banks across the globe. Since the gold standard did not seem to hurt price cycles of innovation when it was around, do you think turning currencies back into sound money could prevent as much debt from being created in the future to help debt bubbles in the future? All right, so uh, fair, oh fair bit to unpack with this one. And that was probably, to be honest, uh, more a question for Thursday's video uh, where we address modern monetary theory, which of course sort of looks at uh, very granularly how money works in, in today's society. Um, but look, in general, uh, no, look, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of this whole gold standard uh, for a few reasons. One, it is ultimately limiting on an economy. So uh, we live in an economy that, that's very, very large these days, far, far larger than what it was back when we had a gold standard. Uh, and it ultimately is a hindrance there where you sort of base your currency off this artificially limited uh, supply. Now, some people really like the idea that, oh, there's something real there. You know, I can, I can hand this money in and I've got something, you know, backing it up. I can go down to the bank and I can take these, you know, yellow lumps of metal away with me. And that sounds fantastic. Um, but there's two things I want to sort of, uh, you to consider in terms of limitations there. One, there was still fractional reserve banking when we had a gold standard. So to an extent, a much less, a much more limited extent than what we had now. There was more paper currency out there than we had gold to back up. So while you could effectively go into a bank and sort of say, yep, I want my gold, please, uh, and I would have to honour it, there wasn't enough for everyone to do that. Uh, and the same sort of thing happens today. Now, obviously, that was considered what we call a run on the bank, um, and that was very, very bad, just as it is very, very bad today. Uh, but the thing is, with a you know unbased currency, something that's completely backed by uh, you know a central bank and nothing else, we don't have those sorts of instances. Worst case scenario. Commercial banks can just phone up the central bank and say, "Hey, mate, I'm in a bit of I'm in a bit of a pickle. I need some cash." There you go, they've got it. So your uh, deposits are more or less guaranteed. So if anything, it actually gives you a lot of security there. Uh, I think the big limitation is, of course, it kind of pulls the the limiting cap, I suppose, out of inflation, uh, which is a problem that a lot of people have. That you know, obviously, my currency is more or less stable because it's pegged to this finite resource. But as soon as I sort of pull it away from that finite resource, there's there's no limit to sort of how valueless it can become. Uh, now, look, that is what it is. Uh, generally, inflation is kind of like a positive force within reason on an economy for, for a few reasons. Uh, but the really big one I want you to take away from this is the second one. And it's kind of more of a philosophical question that you have to really ask yourself. Uh, what gives money value? A lot of it is, a lot of it is, you know, the uh, the ability. Like it has some actual, genuine, tangible value. Uh, this is something that I really hammered in the in the last video. You know, it facilitates trade. It's universally accepted. Uh, it's very, very convenient to send, you know, internationally overseas and in an instant in some cases. Uh, and that's something that you can't really do with gold. You know, if I wanted to send money to a colleague in America to facilitate a, you know, a foreign exchange trade on some kind of uh, option or whatever it may be. Um, well, if we had a gold standard, I mean, I suppose I could still sort of wire in money electronically. Uh, but if we were using something that was very, very much based in that, perhaps I'd have to mail him some paper receipts or, I don't know, like literally send him some gold. It's a bit clunky. It's not as instant. Eventually, yeah, the, eventually the, the uh, form of currency, the gold, would have to be transferred. 
And let's just talk about the transferring gold as a logistical problem is a nightmare. It's, you know, there's so much risk in it. Uh, and uh, there's cases where, you know, shipping gold over from one country to another, where the ship goes down, that gold is gone. It is now at the bottom of the sea. And, uh, you know, for future treasure explorers to find. Yep. But, and, and that's exactly right. So cash, as we know it today, you know, digits on a computer screen or a little paper rectangles actually have a lot of value in the sense that they alleviate a lot of those problems. Uh, in the same way that a computer alleviates some problems, uh, you know, of organization or, or number crunching or whatever, so too do these rectangles. Now, what is inherently val more valuable about gold than these paper rectangles? These gold bugs get love them. <laughs> That's about it. That yeah. seems to be that seems to be it. And in, in, in my world, I look at them and it's, it's yeah. you know my I can't you know use gold in any other capacity other than to appease uh, you know people who are gold bugs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it has some some industrial capacity. I think they line the engine bays of, of very high performance cars with gold, and uh, I don't know. Rich people seem to like putting it on milkshakes for some reason, but. Uh, you know, outside of that, no, I mean, it's kind of just an inert metal that sort of sits there. There's nothing really that gives gold value more so than these paper rectangles. It's just what we agree uh, on. Also, uh, that's a really good point. They say that uh, people, uh, gold has value because we say it has value. In the same way that... For the same reason as we say that this paper rectangle has value. That's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly right. So it's a really, really good question. Uh, I'm not a big fan of gold, then. and actually, in fact, I'm, I'm not even a big fan of, of gold as an investment class anymore. Uh, it used to be somewhat sort of negatively correlated with the stock market. It used to be the go-to uh, item for diversifying risk, making sure that you've got some balance in your portfolio. But nowadays, it, it kind of just moves in line with the rest of the asset classes. We've seen, you know, even even these days, you know, with all the uncertainty in the world. You would think that gold would have appreciated massively in value. It's not. It's gone down, down in value. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of lost yeah. its. It's kind of lost its thing, I think. Uh, but you know, hey, yeah, prove me wrong, I guess. Um, gold is used for a lot of electronics because it's a good conductor for metals. Yeah, yeah. We said. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Well, we said gold had some some uh, uh, limited commercial applications, but that's, uh, yeah, it, it's not what makes it uh, valuable. So anyway, uh, someone had a question. Go ahead. Uh, I want to ask uh, about countries like Jordan. I'm from Jordan. Thank you for your work. Uh, uh, currency is picked to the dollar. So the, and so when the Central Bank of America or the Federal Reserve changes the interest rate, we have to change it too. But does that mean that also when the United States prints more money, um, adds more money into circulation, does that mean that our Central Bank in Jordan do have to pump an equal amount of money that the United States printed or like proportionally? Uh, not necessarily. So when they have it sort of pegged to uh, a currency like the US US currency, for example, sometimes it's something that they do just to add a bit of stability uh, in the same way that you would peg a currency to gold. Uh, you'd sort of have a fixed exchange rate for it. It just means that you have to have reserves of US currency, uh, which is sometimes good, you know, in the sense that it allows you to, you know, people people sort of are happy to transact in your currency by default because they know that they can trade it over for US currency. Uh, it means things like uh, trade is a little bit more sort of easygoing. Uh, and sometimes countries like, let's say, Jordan that are, 
sort of a, a little bit sort of smaller in size economically will do it just because it kind of gives them um, that sort of stability, which a lot of these you know smaller countries need. Um, but it is you know not necessarily something where you have to mirror it. It's just something where, uh, in the same way, uh, here, here's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, I don't know if you if you oh my god. Uh, I don't know if you guys have like casinos or, or whatever it uh, it is in your country, um, but let's say hypothetically someone goes into a casino. What's the first thing you do? You, you uh, trade in all your money. You buy chips. Yeah. yeah, and you buy chips, right? Now the money, the casino maybe takes you two, three hundred bucks and uh, gives you some little plastic discs, and effectively that's the currency of the casino, right? But at any given time, that casino has to have enough cash on hand to cover all of the chips in the casino. And the same is ultimately true for a country like Jordan. If they guarantee that their currency is exchangeable for US dollars, they just have to make sure that they have enough currency on hand in US dollars to cover, well, realistically, they should have all of the currency that they have out there in circulation. Uh, realistically, they'd have probably about 10 to 15% because they make the assumption that it's unlikely that more than sort of, you know, 10% of people are going to want to exchange it over at any given time. Um, so that is the same sort of analogy that I use for people that have these pegged currencies, which means they often have a lot of cash sitting around, just like a casino would. Um, but effectively, you know, it's it's one and the same thing. It, it doesn't really dictate that they have to behave with those sort of chips in, in any particular way. But a good question. But uh, one more question. But now, for example, if there were like $100 that you would trade for 70 dinars, uh, that's the currency of Jordan, Yep. So if we ha now have $120, but we still have the same 70 dinars, does that mean that the dinar should becomes more expensive? So does that mean that we have to print money just to keep the same interest rate at the same exchange rate fixed? Yeah, so um, here's the thing. Not really. If you've got sufficient enough currency reserves, so I would assume the government of Jordan uh, or the central bank would have sufficient currency reserves, that whatever they say the currency exchange is, so let's say it's one you know, for one US dollar, let's, for, for, for ease of doing business, let's just say that's the case, okay? Um, it's mm -hmm. pretty much the case that it will stay there. If America prints a shit ton more currency, normally in a free floating exchange market, normally what that would mean is that the US dollar becomes less, val less valuable. Uh, let's say it, it goes down to 50 cents um, per, per, you know, you can buy two US dollars for your one, one dinar, and that's 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 cool. That's how sort of market forces normally work. Um, but if the central bank or the government of Jordan sort of says, nope, uh, it's going to be worth it's one for one, no matter what. Um, here's here's how this trade's going to go. If you were selling US dollars to buy a dinar, then you wouldn't accept anything less than one for one dollar. And in the same way, mm. if you were buying US dollars for dinar, you wouldn't accept anything more than one dollar for one, you know, it just sort of, because I know if I'm getting, let's say I have one US dollar and someone says, okay, I'll only give you 50 cents dinar for that. I'd be like, no, I'll just go to your government and they'll do it for free. They'll do it for one for one. And in the same way, if you have one dinar and someone's offering you 50 cents US for it, you'll be like, no, oh, no, I'll just go to my government and they'll do it one for one. So that's where it kind of equalizes that price level. They have to have really sufficient currency reserves to achieve that, but eventually it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy that, that no one really exchanges outside of, of the government. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Does, does that make sense? Uh, yes, it does. Thank you very much.
Yeah, cool. All right, no worries. Uh, someone else had a question about the video, I think. It was very quiet. Uh, yeah, I have yeah. a... Oh, sorry. Oh, thank you, man. Uh, I wanted to ask you, why did you mention uh, the fourth industrial revolution in the video? Because I think it's kind of a big topic when we come to the, the, the revolutions and we totally haven't mentioned it in the video. What? I wasn't. I wanted to ask why. Enlighten us. What's the fourth industrial revolution? Uh, well, the cloud computing revolution, the rise of AI, sort of, sort of that. Yeah. So, a uh, few things to unpack there. Now, this is where we have to differentiate economics from, um, let's say, optimism. Uh, I guess, in a, in a way, cloud computing, uh, AI things of that nature. Now, they are all very um, exciting and in good fields, but they're not, they're not something that would pertain to an industrial revolution in and of themselves. While they may help business, and I know they're certainly very sort of, uh, you know, amazing technologies, they're not sufficient enough that they would drive global economic growth on their own back. Uh, computers that made its way into every office in America um, you know, things like electronic mail, computer-aided design, that was, that was sufficient enough. We went from a society that had no computers to a society that had computers, and we know how much we use computers today. They're, they're almost, um, you know, unavoidable and, and irreplaceable in, in our modern lives. Going from a society that has computers with basic access to the internet, a few Excel spreadsheets, to a computer that has these, you know, amazing gadgets and gizmos and whatever, uh, is not as big as a leap. It, it wouldn't sort of in my opinion, and in most economists' opinion, uh, all we're doing is improving on existing technology. In the same way that, um, you know, the second industrial revolution where we had internal combustion engines and stuff like that. If you look at a Ford Model T and then compare it to, uh, you know, a Tesla Model S, fuck, you know, those, well, actually Tesla Model S doesn't use an internal combustion engine. Let's say, uh, I don't know, a new Mercedes. Man, those things are day and night. Like, it looks like completely irrelevant technology. But uh, moving it from a society that didn't have any cars, used horses, to a society that did have cars is much bigger of a leap uh, than moving from a car that, you know, maybe had 20 horsepower and can only go 60 miles an hour to a car that has, you know, 500 horsepower and can go 200 miles an hour. Uh, it's just sort of incremental innovation rather than a huge leap. So uh, you can disagree with me there. Uh, but I would not call that a, a new industrial revolution in and of itself. Uh, AI, potentially, um, but we don't have AI yet, do we? Oh, yeah, I think uh, I think you're right, in a sense. I really disagree with you on that, but I think arguing, uh, especially right now, about whether AI is a huge leap forward or not, it actually doesn't make sense. So, yeah, let's just leave it there. Thank you. No, not a, no problem at all. And hey, um, I, I want to be. I, really I can't even get a, I do really on want. Netflix right now. Ah, well, okay. Obviously, current current issues aside, I really want to be like this famous quote by. Oh, this is great. when I try and get on Netflix. Okay, I'm power hungry pandas, obviously, uh, in the middle of a dog fighting ring. Um, so, Sorry, Alec. <laughs> yeah, so um, they. <laughs> I, 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 there's a really great quote by. Um, Paul Krugman, I think. Yeah, yeah. Someone will link the picture where he's sort of sitting down and sort of saying, oh, yeah, I don't think the internet's going to have anything more to do on, on society than a fax machine. Uh, <laughs> and God, how wrong was he, right? So, hey, fingers crossed, in 20 years' time, I look like a 
fucking idiot when someone pulls up this live stream and I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. AIs and, and cloud computing, yeah, not a big deal. Just just an incremental, uh, incremental improvement on current technology. Uh, I got a question for you since you brought up uh, Tesla and everything else. Yes. Uh, what do you think of Starlink? Uh, yeah. If I mean, you are ever of it. I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool, right? Like the idea of, you know, having some... Because I think that it would be a second revolution in the internet. It, it would bring 3 billion people into the internet market. And I think that would be a really good engine for growth. Yeah. You're, you're thinking really low then, uh, because me, I look at that and I see that this is a space revolution. Yeah. This is, we are on the, I don't want to speculate and, you know, talk about optimism, but if we're going to be talking about a future industrial revolution, space is likely, or, you know, the capacity for us to colonize and industrialize, you know, our local space is, uh, yeah. definitely a likely. Let's finally be I, uh, I, I have a question. I have a question regarding uh, like uh, the the numbers about GDP. Yeah. Uh, like a a more accurate uh, metric that we can use to measure GDP. What, yeah. what about some way? I know it'd be really hard to measure, but some way to measure like the uh, the aggregate demand of consumers or like how much the median person in an economy can like buy in that economy over time um gdp does measure aggregate demand in a society that's exactly what it does can i ask something can you explain the gdp itself like uh, the sectors inside it like in details if you if you may well, like... I'm, I'm sorry i'm talking about more like uh like how much purchasing power a family has in an economy specifically not more because gdp also measures like businesses and things yes it does uh, it does measure so like may, maybe measuring like a family's purchasing power relative like to the like time it's been there yes yeah, so i'm sorry i'm i'm not making much no, sense no, right no. now so, so what you're probably looking at is like uh, household income figures uh, and then sort of their relative purchasing power within an economy, which I tend to agree with you, actually. It tends to have, uh, you, you can sort of look at, um, you know, medium wages in an economy, um, you know, fantastic. And then uh, obviously sort of extrapolate out for how many people the average household has. So let's say there's one and a half people working in an average household. I don't know if that figure is true for any particular economy, but um, yeah, so we can say, oh, we'll look at the median wage is $40,000 and an average household has an income of $60,000. What does that buy them in an economy? Is it buying them more of a consumer price index sort of basket one year to the next? And that would sort of count as growth. Um, and, you know, sort of people getting more wealthy or, and or sort of producing more. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think that's probably a really good way of doing things. The only thing is, my God, is it hard to measure. It is really hard to measure. Um, you know, you, you have to think of, um, you know, uh, figuring out how many people are working in each individual household, figuring out their average salaries, then figuring out, um, you know, what that means they can purchase in terms of consumer price index. And the other thing is it's a bit slower. Wages tend to react slower than actual spending in an economy. So sometimes by the time, you know, you see sort of negative influences on this figure, uh, it's already too late to react to things. But I think long term, if you're sort of looking back at how we actually went, I think you're completely right. I think it's a much better way of looking at it. So, um, yeah, good old. I've got a question about uh, 
the global response to COVID. So we're seeing a lot of countries uh, toying with the idea of freezing rents and mortgage repayments. Yep. So obviously that's um, essentially freezing any investment value in a lot of illiquid assets. Yep. Um, I was thinking about that equation where you've got um, money supply times velocity is equal to uh, the price of your aggregate goods sold in a year times yep. the quantity of your goods. Right. Um, the money supply is not really increasing as far as I can see proportionally to the velocity of the money supply if they're freeing up so much um, income by simultaneously providing stimulus to a lot of people. Um, is there a risk that this could cause prices to skyrocket in some places? So you're saying that for housing in particular? No, no, uh, for consumer goods. Um, because I'm, I'm imagining that these illiquid assets that they're freezing prices of yeah. would actually be losing value. Right, and you're saying, yeah, and that, that would make sense. And you're saying perhaps people have more free cash now so they can sort of uh, spend more of their income on like consumer goods and things like that. Is that, is that what you're sort of alluding to? Yeah, so uh, at least you, you probably have more knowledge than I do. Like obviously here in Australia that they've been discussing doing that with rent and mortgages. Um, but then they've also jacked up um, job seeker allowance and the COVID stimulus. And it's to the point where a lot of people who were previously working are actually now receiving more money than they were hmm. um, while they're employed. Yeah, and that is the case. Yeah, it's like $1,100 a fortnight, which is uh, obviously nothing to write home about, but it's still a livable wage. You can actually do all right on 1100 depending on where it is that you live. In Sydney, forget about it. In you know, in a rural sort of country town, yeah, fair enough. You you do pretty well for that. Um, now, uh, and the and the COVID um the COVID stimulus on top of that, which is another five hundred a fortnight. So you're sitting on sixteen hundred a fortnight unemployed. Uh, no, no, it's eleven hundred dollars a fortnight. Uh, it's five hundred and fifty, which is the standard new start allowance, plus five hundred and fifty, uh, which is the the COVID sort of extension. So that that brings it to to eleven hundred dollars a fortnight. Um, which again is is still um, quite all right. And on top of rent allowances and things like that, you're probably bringing in like let's say. $1,300 a fortnight, but that's semantics. Uh, now, there's a few things to unpack there with your question, um, and in, in in my sort of experiment, what you're afraid of uh, is that sort of pumping all this money out to people, uh, especially when you sort of take away their rental expenses, going to increase prices for other bits and bobs in a society. Uh, and look, the answer to that is, is yes, it effectively could, um, but there's two ways to think about, there's two things that cause uh, an inflation in prices. The first is an increase in demand. Now, demand is made up of people that are willing and able to purchase something. So if you increase people's household income, that means that more people are able to purchase X item. Uh, and it also means if they feel a little bit wealthier, perhaps they're more willing to purchase it as well. You know, I'm more willing to purchase, I don't know, uh, that new plasma screen TV because, hey, don't worry about it, Dahl. We don't have to pay rent for six months. I'm sure there are conversations like that happening all over Australia right now. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll see an increase in, in the purchase price of uh, plasma screen TVs because demand has increased for them. Because uh, people are saying, oh, well, look, I'm going to be in quarantine for six months. Don't have to pay rent for six months. I'm getting this fancy new job keeper allowance, uh, job seeker allowance. Fantastic. You beauty. I'm going to go buy out a 72-inch TV. We're going we're gonna to live through this quarantine in style. So that increases the demand for, let's say, 72-inch plasma screen TVs. You beauty. Now, the other thing that's going to happen to that is... I think you overestimate how much free money people have. I do. 
on because a lot of people also lose their jobs so also they lose their source of income it's, it's one thing that you don't have to pay rent but if you have no income you can't spend it on yeah. uh, additional resources either all of it all of oh, I'm, I'm specifically answered I was specifically interested in the in the situation in Australia where uh, they are receiving a lot of money and they're also discussing pausing rent and mortgages. Yeah. So so all other things being. I happened. mean, the government obviously can take over paying rent on uh, behalf of the people. That's a compromise that can can be done. What they're saying is that rent will just freeze for six months, uh, which of course frees up a lot of money. Now I hear what you're saying, Panty, that yeah, you know, a lot of people don't aren't in the position that oh yeah, we'll just go out and do it. Um, but also, look, you know, you are here talking to me on an economics forum. Chances are you're better with money than the average person is, because the average person out there is a freaking idiot. Uh, if they get a bit of money in their pocket, <laughs> they're going to go and spend it. That's why we're in this goddamn mess. Anyway, um, all other things being equal, ceteris paribus, yes, uh, you know, we are going to see something where people are going to have more free cash flow, um, you know, in certain instances. Perhaps they lose their job and obviously it goes backwards, but let's just take it as a particular case study. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Uh, obviously, we haven't seen the figures yet. Now, that is going to increase demand for 72-inch plasma screen TVs. Let's just all agree that we can we can agree on that, okay? Uh, that's what I really, really want here. Now, on the other side, um, the problem is we get 72-inch plasma screen TVs from China. Now, China has been out of action for close on three months now. You know, things like factories are only just starting to open up again. International shipping and things of the like is severely limited because, uh, you know, not a lot of countries want to sort of operate, operate their ports and stuff like that. Everything's going real slow, which means the supply of those TVs is actually decreased. Now, these are the two things that cause inflation. If there's an increase in demand or if there's a de decrease in supply, uh, it means that people will have to bid more for the, you know, let's say 10 or 15 TVs that are left in Australia, uh, which means that you're going to see an increase in price. So hypothetically, yes, but my goodness, we have to make a lot of assumptions to come to that. Uh, but it'll be interesting to sort of see. In, in, in reality, I sort of think there's going to be sort of things outside of that perfect little assumption. Businesses doing out of bit, like going out of business sales, um, you know, that are... I uh, said, so say stockpiles that they'll have to get through and stuff like that, which will sort of reduce the prices. Uh, I don't really sort of foresee an upward trend in, in consumer good prices, but mm. I kind of like I kind of like the theory. It's it's a very interesting thing to sort of uh, take pick apart. Taylor on the YouTube live stream sort of correctly said toilet paper. Yes, toilet paper will increase in price. There you go. That's that's my prediction. Oh, that's as, well as it is. Uh, that's a bit a bit of prediction <laughs> from me. If you would like, uh, it exposed. Uh, the vulnerability of our supply chains. Do you think that governments are going to take uh, steps to rectify this so uh, this vulnerability gets compensated in a time of crisis? Uh, do you want my honest answer? Nope. Uh, people tend to, you know, we're, we're, we're like, uh, we're a blue sky society. You know, businesses during good times are incentivized to operate for those good times. You know, they're incentivized to bring on massive profits, do stock buybacks, you know, deliver massive dividends so that the people in charge get massive bonuses. Everyone wins. They're not incentivized in such a way that they're planning over a 10-year period. The average CEO stays in the job for five years at max. It's different for every country, but uh, realistically, they're not long-term planners. They want to make as much fucking money as possible in the shortest amount of time and get the fuck out because no one wants to do that job for a long enough period of time. So realistically, call me a cynic. Um, but no, I, I think we're going to be exactly in the same sort of situation 10 years from now. 
uh, because we just incentivize the way business is structured, the way society, like, you know, uh, companies are structured, the way incentives are structured for these industries is very much to, to make, you know, sort of wring the shit out of the good times and then, I don't know, either fail during the bad times or beg for a government handout. Uh, either way, it doesn't matter. By the time they kind of get around to that, the CEOs made their money. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones that make the decision. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe that, that maybe that's just me being overly cynical. I have another question relating to the Australian economy, but uh, also, I guess, the global economy. But the eff the effects, I think, will certainly be more pronounced in Australia, depending on the answer. So, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the uh, figures yeah. we're seeing coming out of... Yeah? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the figures we're seeing coming out of China are essentially saying um, we've got this under control, but uh, historically there there are reasons to not necessarily take that at face value. Um, and it looks like a lot of economic analysts have sort of priced in that China does have it under control. Um, and then it seems like, the, at least from what I can see, the prevailing wisdom is that China's moved past it, everything's better there now, we just have to move past it. And then because China's um, economy is operating as normal. We can rely on that to get us back on our feet. And there's this idea of this V-shaped recovery. <clears throat> yeah. If it turns out that uh, China, in fact, does not have it under control, which, you know, let, let's not even get into discussing that, but assuming they don't, um, what is the recovery for the global economy likely to look like if we don't have sort of anyone who's doing well to kickstart things, in your opinion? So in my opinion, what I'm really afraid of is, is right now, um, look, at the end of the day, I'm still a human and I think making sure that we save as many lives as possible is the most important thing. Uh, you know, Obviously, I'm an economist, so I think of the economy and, and I'm invested into share markets and uh, things like that. So I'm exposed to it. Um, you know, don't, don't feel too bad for me. I'll be just fine. Um, but uh, I think right now we're sort of fighting a battle on two fronts. At the end of the day, um, what's more important to governments right now is to ensure that people survive, you know, people stay home, people don't feel like they need to go out to work um, and expose themselves to, to what is, you know, a potentially life-threatening disease, which I think is certainly understandable. Um, China, I think, for better or for worse, probably did the same thing. Um, you know, they once they realised how bad it was and you know, potentially how much it would sort of ruin their you know, ruin their face, ruin their uh, sort of standings in the world. They kind of obviously clamped down on it pretty hard. And do I believe their figures at the moment when they're sort of saying, oh, well, look, you know, we have 31 people uh, a day being sort of exposed to it when, you know, we're kind of, the, you know, one of the one of the most populous countries in the world. Ah, I don't know. I don't really think so. But that's neither here nor there. That That's my speculation. What I'm afraid yeah. of... Yeah. Yes, Fran. Sorry. I just got the perfect meme for you about China in VC chat. Oh, Lord. Okay. You made a I have a question also. Oh, jeez. Alrighty. Okay, well, everyone laugh at that. That's actually pretty good. I'll, I'll pay that. Now, to pick up where I left off. Um, uh, oh, jeez. <laughs> I think what I'm actually afraid of is that a lot of governments have done the right thing in a sense that they have pushed the problem six months down the road. So we've seen here in Australia, look, if you want to, you can call up your bank, you can delay your mortgage payments for six months. Same thing with rent. If you, you know, can't pay your rent because you're out of work, you can ring up, you know, the, your landlord and, and, you know, you normally be able to talk them into sort of forgiving your rent for six months. No worries. That, that's pretty good. It's a, it's a correct reaction to this. That means that people can stay home and stay out of harm's way. Uh, but the thing is, in six months time, 
bang, we're going to all start paying our rents again. You know, sure, life will hopefully be back to normal. People will be back at work and, uh, you know, buying their smashed avocado toasts and lattes in the morning. But suddenly people have gone from living where they don't have to pay rent or they don't have to pay a mortgage to boom, you know, suddenly I have to pay this again. Oftentimes with accrued interest on top of it over that six months. So their repayments are going to be even more uh, than what they expected. Plus on top of that, you know, initially they're going to want to sort of live life to the fullest because finally we're out of quarantine. But after that's done, we're going to have some serious cash flow problems in our economy. Now, hopefully what I'm sort of saying is that if that happens, and it will happen, in six months' time we're fucked. Uh, when those mortgage start payments start sort of hitting our, you know, our wallets again, you know, we're going to need to deal with that problem. But hopefully in six months' time, the more pressing issue of, you know, a killer virus is, is alleviated so we can deal with we can deal with those problems one at a time, right? Uh, and I think that's what most rational governments around the world are kind of trying to do. Let's just put the economy on pause for six months. No payments go anywhere. Sure, that's going to cause all manner of problems, but we can deal with that after we're finished dealing with the problem right now. And I think that's especially going to be the case in, um, in, in Australia. In Australia, like property, for example, I think that's going to be a big one. There's going to be a little bit of a downturn now when, you know, Airbnb sort of start to go up on the rental market and, and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think it's nearly going to be as big as, as what happened good, in six months. Good, Airbnb is yeah. cancer. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about also economic growth, like in countries like Jordan again. Okay. Um, so uh, Jordan is seen as having a high GDP debt to uh, debt to GDP ratio with about 97%. Yeah, uh, and this has almost doubled in the last ten years because of our neighborhood, and it's not the best neighborhood in the world, being in the Middle East and all. Uh, but because we need to keep on lending just to uh, pay out uh, government expenses, the World Bank has many um, um, rules or uh, regulations, and these often include. Uh, increasing taxes and doing things that are not necessarily good for business. And that has made, uh, for example, Amman one of the most expensive cities in the Middle East, uh, just as expensive as Dubai, while the medium income is, is, not, uh, is not there. So how would you, how would you balance uh, increasing taxes growth in, and adding business uh, and so, so on so, because the the effects of the, the the rules that are imposed by the world bank are often uh, everything i get they do everything not to promote economic growth i feel and many in jordan do yeah um well look i mean i'm gonna be really honest with you i don't know anything specifically about the jordanian economy so um, I'll be straight up there. I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I, I haven't studied it specifically. So, uh, you know, take it as you will. Now, I think, see, the bad parts of it is that it sounds like you don't control your own currency. So I don't know if you watched the video on Thursday. It's on modern monetary theory and how sort of, you know, some governments can kind of get away with, with higher debts. Um, but it also seems like a lot of your debt is household debt. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like, 75% of your GDP. Uh, I'm just sort of looking at the figures here now. I've got them up in front of me. And if that's the case, man, that's freaking horrific. 
Uh, potentially your saving grace, though, is that you do have foreign currency reserves. As I expected, given that you've got this pegged currency uh, with the US dollar, you need to keep a shit ton of US dollars around, so that might be able to sort of save you in this kind of case. Uh, but look, honestly, outside of that, until I actually research it specifically, I I don't know what to say, man. Uh, you probably know far better than I do. I'm, I'm just sort of... I've never studied the economy of Jordan specifically, so um, I'd probably sort of look pretty... But what I meant is just, yeah, thank you for your answer, but because the World Bank usually, when he... Uh, this, the policy for the World Bank is just one stamp fits all for all countries that take debt from the World Bank. There's usually increased taxes, uh, increase, uh, uh, reduce subsidies, uh, and uh, so and they impose... so. Uh, usually, the main thing is that they, they force countries to increase taxes, and this is hugely unpopular in all countries that receive aid or like loans from the World Bank. And then uh, they gave us loans, and then we just use them to pay previous, either interest or just uh, to pay the running expenses, but not necessarily to invest again in the, into the economy. Yeah, well, because there's not much more to spend. Uh, uh, so this is this more about the World Bank than about the Jordan. Yeah, so the World Bank's primary purpose is to give funding to to countries so that they can develop. Uh, obviously, you know, if you take out a loan and you use it irresponsibly, well, I mean, uh, there's not much to be said there. That that's obviously a, a shitty situation for for the people that didn't have the the influence to control that decision. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you take out a loan, you, you've got to pay it back. And if you use it in an irresponsible way that doesn't deliver your returns, uh, obviously you're left with the burden of that loan. Um, I don't know what the question is beyond that. Can I ask something else? Uh, the GDP itself, can can you explain in percentage, uh, like, uh, is it all only ta uh, stocks or... A little bit cash flow into the economy, like for goods and like services. You're asking. Is it that. just that, or there is another sectors, another percentage that included in the GDP? Ah, uh, so you're saying how do we calculate GDP? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, basically. Right. Okay. Yep. So GDP is uh, it's an equation. Someone will probably be able to type it out in in chat right now. It's very very simple. Uh, it's basically the sum total of transactions in an economy, more or less. Uh, so GDP equals household spending, so how much all of the households in a country spend in a given year on this, that, or anything else, plus investment, so how much people invest into an economy in a given year, plus government spending, net government spending normally, uh, plus net exports. So, um, imp uh, sorry, exports minus imports. So it gives you an idea of, yep, there you go. So someone's sort of written out, she sort of put it out in a nice... Uh, easy thanks, thanks, guys. Yeah, it's basically the sum total of all of those transactions. So it's very much a it's a consumption side calculation, uh, which you just need to consider. Yeah, it's it's good for some things, not great for other things. Uh, we had a chat probably before you just joined about what we thought of GDP, and uh, people have let's call them mixed opinions on it as as sort of the be all and end all. Um, but yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully that sort of answers that question there. Yeah, GDP equals a joke. Well, there you go. Cool. All right. Um, so I guess we will hand yes. it over to uh, one or two sort of last questions, and then I think I will need to go because we're working on something or other, uh, me and Captain Locke, which is all very exciting. Um, so does anyone have anything else outside of potentially what we've been discussed? So no Jordan, uh, no Australia. 
I have a question on the um, live stream topic. Thank goodness. Okay. Uh, whoever was talking. About <laughs> uh, I guess I'll establish dominance by continuing to talk. So um, on the topic of can an economy grow forever, um, I've heard about the idea of uh, steady state economies, mm -hmm. such as an, an economy that essentially, you know, doesn't really grow or shrink by very much or um, theoretically at all. Yeah. Although that seems a bit unrealistic. Um, what might a steady state economy look like? Japan. In, in your opinion. Isn't, isn't Japan sort of, um, sort of just stagnating before it begins to decline on its current trajectory rather than being solid state? Well, or am I misunderstanding what a solid state economy is? Hasn't really done anything in 30 years. It's kind of just sat there. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it, it's trying to grow. It, it still innovates, but I think there's sort of enough. It's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, ah, Captain Lock, you're, what, what's, what's Newton's law? That basically, if like there's two equal forces pushing on something, it's just going to stay still. Uh, you know, it, there's the forces of innovation and stuff like that, that it's trying to push it along, yeah. but it's also got this really old population. And Newton's you know, third well, law. Kind of it I think it's away. a third law. It, yeah, Japan's in a very odd is... situation. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of not sitting there like completely unaffected by anything. There's sort of just things pushing on either end of the economy. Some that want it to grow and some that want it to shrink. That they're kind of like in a perfect equilibrium at the moment. So it's kind of just sat there and done nothing really for for thirty years. Uh, it's literally the economy of like you know you know what's that meme where someone pokes it with a stick and it's like do something, does nothing, just sits there, just chills. Uh, which is you know. It's good and bad, I suppose, but yeah, that, that would be the best example, I would say. Yeah, Wikipedia says a steady-state economy shouldn't be confused with economic stagnation. And when I think economic stagnation, I think of Switzerland and Japan. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what they sort of use as a differentiating factor there. Um, at the end of the day... Steady it, states in physics means it does not vary with time. So, it, it, so for example, not, it would have a constant growth rate or something like that. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, so like a stagnating economy normally means that people's living standards or, or something like that has, has decreased. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case in Japan. For, for the most part, they have still sort of seen a somewhat sort of gradual, very gradual increase in their living standards over time. Uh, so I wouldn't... Yeah, perhaps it's, perhaps it's unfair to call it um, a, um, you know, a stagnant economy. But look, I think realistically you have to understand that the lines between the two would be uh, very, very blurry. Uh, and I suppose potentially the other thing is that Japan doesn't want to be steady state. All economies want to grow. Um, so maybe that's another sort of point of differentiation as well. They're, they're trying. They're really trying to grow. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, and then here's a question. Your opinion on degrowth then? Because that has been pushed forward more and more during the crisis. That we need to degrow. I think... Um, look, there, there are two ways, well, look, there's really only one way that you can do that, um, well, and that's if your population also declines. Uh, and that's not to say that that's necessarily something bad. Look, I mean, if you look at places like Japan, uh, yeah, their, their population is starting to go backwards. Uh, and that's fine. Look, I mean, if you have a smaller population, um, but, you know, still large proportional wealth, that means that the people in that, po that population are going to be wealthier. But if you're degrowing, uh, whatever it is that they've called it, and your population is still increasing. Now, that's terrible. That's a terrible outcome. Uh, it means that, you know, uh, generations, you know, your children are going to be richer, poorer than you are, and your, 
you know, your grandchildren are going to be poorer, poorer than they are. That's that's absolutely not what you want to what you want to be in your um, society. That's that's a terrible outcome. I don't know anyone that would sort of rationally sort of push for that sort of ideology outside of I don't know, like let's say environmental extremists or something like that. Uh, unless they also sort of hand in hand sort of suggested that you know um, you know population sort of slowly declines with it. In that case, yeah, it's an idea. Um, but look, I don't know. Call me old fashioned. I, I sort of like good old fashioned growth. Uh, which is the final thing that I did want to talk about briefly, uh, which is what I sort of predict would be the fourth industrial revolution. Now, we have already sort of touched on it, um, but I don't think it's going... So, obviously, we had the initial industrial revolution. That was steam power, textile mills, you know, order, like, you know, uh, using, you know, the introduction to factories and machinery in our everyday lives. And then beyond that, internal combustion engines and electricity and uh, really sort of ramping that up. Uh, and then beyond that, we had the computer revolution. Uh, I would say, look, call me an optimist, but I would say our next revolution is going to be uh, a revolution in space, uh, utilizing sort of resources in space, utilizing uh, where it's beyond communication and sort of, you know, scientific endeavors, which is basically the only thing that we've really used it for so far. Uh, we're going to start utilizing it for a lot more. Maybe that's just because I'm a giant sci-fi nerd and I kind of want it to be true, but I think that would be the next logical leap. And, uh, you know, once we get into that, you know, where we can sort of harvest the resources of a solar system, uh, we sort of do have an almost sort of unlimited potential for future growth then because, of course, we're not, you know, sort of chained down to this little blue rock that ultimately has mm. limited resources. So, I don't know. Well, what are your mm. thoughts on that? I... Yeah, it's it does good. have it's a solid. lot of potential in space. There's a lot of potential, but there's also a lot of huge... Of, uh, huge um, technical difficulties uh i hope they're overcome but i think we're a little bit far away like at least 20 years far away where and where space is a major industry that we could uh, see any real gdp uh, like any growth from it yeah but and i just wanted to add one point just if you could keep it in your in the back of your head uh in the future like your videos have really been great but if you could do a video idea about the World Bank and their theory about growth because it's really, really highly controversial in many countries who actually receive funding from the World Bank. And mm. thank you. Yeah, like may, I inter may I interject on the topic of space? Sure, like, go ahead. Cur currently, there's one major problem with it, and it's basically energy and it's thermodynamics. So, unfortunately, oh, unless. Everybody, I just want to pause. Heat Seeking Sword, probably one of the best people to talk about this. Uh, I sorry, go ahead. No, no. But yeah, like, what he's about to say is, you know, very important. Yeah, like the the main problem with space currently is that it's thermodynamic. So unless we basically make a Dyson sphere, and there's so many problems occurred occurring to it. Like, yeah, we have planets and we have atoms on those, but if they're in such state that we cannot use them without like making super nuclear reactors. So, so unless we have fusion or like some magic technology that suddenly makes everything way more efficient, full on space colonization, like solar systems, whatever, would be like, with a big economic impact would be very unrealistic. Yeah. I don't I, think so. I, I, I kind of hope, uh, hope uh, you know, I, I like the idea of blowing Mercury up and building a Dyson, uh, a Dyson swarm. That'd be pretty, <laughs> that'd be pretty neat. Yeah, I, I, I'd love it as well. But like, especially when you look at, so most of the things are like, oh, we are going to produce these things at the, 
like we're going to produce like carbon nanotubes at like uh, Mars out of the carbon dioxide in the soil or whatever. And I'm like, no, you need like literally for every atom, like it doesn't matter, but like most of the atoms are, for example, in the state of um, carbon dioxide, or you've got um, well, let's say water, etc., which are very inert, very stable atoms. I need a lot of like fucking shit ton of energy to actually yep. so would you um, say it around. The, but perhaps the next industrial revolution would be like fusion energy um fusion energy but or maybe even more realistic actually an educational revolution um like something as either ai that just becomes self-learning or us that improve our ability to learn because like as you also mentioned in the video uh we have our problem with labor people are like taking extremely long to get educated, et cetera, et cetera. And they just choose simpler educations, but it's more realistic that on a sooner basis, either with just way better teaching or some AI assistance. Like I, I heard like this AI assisted design that things become way easier to learn and that that might be the following revolution. And fusion might, but we don't know. We have been saying fusion is like 10 years away for the past 70 years. So, yeah. 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 E, e, um, here's a suggestion on something we should do. We should just host uh, a live Q&A where we exclusively just talk about space. Space yeah. exploration. Yes. Fuck yes. Yeah, it and sounds fun. Like, no video, totally just... Well, I, I mean, I did do a video on, on making space economically viable. But yes, like, it but... It was, like, very, very unpopular, so... Yeah. You guys suck. Uh, hey, hey, hey. Let's do it. Don't, hey, don't do it for Scott, the, the Zs. Do it for you. Just do it for yourself. And do it for me as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you yeah. know. Hey, hey, hey Seeking Sword, I think your idea of um, space economics is uh, perhaps a bit far-fetched. You're looking a bit too far into the future. Realistic proposals for industrializing space involve uh, bringing asteroids into orbit. Uh, many of like the asteroids in the asteroid belt yeah, I know. So bringing them into the orbit of Earth, and many of the asteroids in the asteroid belt have more metal content than all of the metal ever mined on Earth. Indeed, and, but what is what is the standard enthalpy for mining metals? Yeah, and so that, like, that's what, what I'm is, saying. You're thinking too far into the future. Like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of there are a lot of problems that need to be addressed, and the only yeah. way that they're really going to be addressed is through a combination of both chemical engineers. Uh, mechanics astrophysicists and just a multiple like you just need a team of multiple uh, disciplinary people working on every single possible problem that is going to occur i mean there's a lot of problems and then yeah the idea the, of the like team, how do we how do we do yeah it? yeah let, let me finish though so we actually have all the technology for that right now we have spacex with their reusable rockets the space shuttle is being demonstrated by two separate nations Yes, um, I, I do know. I do know we have the. We, I do know we have the technology, but the thing about it is energy. Yeah, like no, you're exactly. talking about entropy and en entropy and and Dyson spheres. Like you, you've been reading too much sci-fi, man. That has no. nothing to do with um, scaling I'm scaling I'm, up okay. industrialization of space. I'm, before I'm, I'm literally uh, talking just, about. Yeah, I don't okay, really well, see why a Dyson um, sphere is necessary for with this. I the thing that what I was trying to address is that to get like actual things out of space like if i just you, you don't need to take things out of space all right yeah uh before you guys actually murder each other 
I am um, going to say I appreciate the conversation, but um, I, myself, and Captain Locke, we have uh, stuff and things and things and stuff to discuss. Um, you guys are all more than welcome to continue hanging out on the Q&A session. In fact, I encourage it. Uh, so continue yelling at each other, but please, please, please remain civil. Uh, for everyone that was watching over on the live stream, thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed uh, not only the Q&A session, but also the video. And I hope to see you guys all on Thursday. But then, peace out, guys. See you. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Ah.